Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. Joan Mavis Rosanov, Ni no, Lazarus. This is not the person I was thinking of. Start again. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're wrong. That is not no. what you're doing today. No, no, no. I don't. I won't have it. <laughs> Take two. Okay, let's go. And welcome to Chicks Tree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name's Annie, and with me today is Phoebe. Oh, hey! As always, as always, I'm here. Nothing I'm a new. permanent fixture now. She's a permanent fixture. Mm. Um, we were just having a little chat before we got on to on on air. I was going to say <laughs> before we got on air, before we went live. Um, that we're getting so much good feedback and it's so lovely. Thank you, everybody. It's really nice to hear. For it's the not, good... Yeah, it's that you're all enjoying it and you're um, learning about all these chicks. Yeah, it's good. It, it warms our warms the little cockles of our mm. hearts, mm. which is good. What have you been up to? Um, look, enjoying this beautiful weather. Got to say, Melbourne oh, at the moment. Turning it's, it on. The, the sun is shining. The mm. spring is in the air. Mm. It's lovely. I know. And it's so nice walking the dog now in the morning because it's warm and the, I love the smell of jasmine and Daphne. Like I oh, love that during so spring. So nice. Become a grandma. <laughs> How does that go with your hay fever? Jasmine's oh, pretty. Not great. I, do, I usually wake up and just take two. Um, Tell fast first thing in the morning. Yeah, just kick it straight away. Yeah, I'm very lucky that I've never, I've never had to um, deal with hay fever, but I do have lots of friends who do, and it just Mm. doesn't sound very nice. It's really not. It's really not. I don't recommend it. Zero out of (laughs) ten. That's Phoebe's Yelp review of hay fever. Um, <laughs> Thank you for coming. Mm. Thank you for coming. Um, I I was listening to a lot of podcasts on the weekend, like I do every weekend. Basically, I immerse myself in the world of pod podcasts. I was doing a little bit of gardening because the weather was so lovely and getting my veggie patch happening. Mm. But just I just wanted to make a little mention because we we talked about this. Um, a few seasons ago, so our listeners who've been who've been listening to the podcast for a while would know that um, I am a massive Hedley Thomas fan. Hedley Thomas has also done another podcast that I love called Shandy Story. Shandy Story is about um, the brutal murder of of Shandy, and then Hedley Thomas investigates that murder. And during the investigation, he finds there's some issue with the the DNA testing the samples that they get. And apparently that when the DNA was sent off to Queensland Health, they it came back inconclusive, even though the DNA that was tested was from a pool of blood, Shandy's oh. blood. And it didn't even they didn't even say that they could get her DNA from that. And mm. there were other things, the suspect's car was tested and they said that they couldn't even find his DNA, which is just, just ridiculous. 
So Headley enlisted the help of this woman called Dr. Kirsty Wright. I did her, I think, as a chick in the now when Evie and I were doing yep. the chick in the now segment because she started uncovering all of this stuff about why was this not tested and why did it come back inconclusive. Anyway, the um, there's an inquest that's just started this week or last week that now is basically uncovering Queensland Health thousands and thousands of cases that that the DNA has has to be retested on these cases that involve current and ongoing investigations murders rapes you know all of these horrible crimes of oh. you know and and people who have gotten away with it based mm. on inconclusive DNA but now the DNA is being having to be retested and it's all because of the the Queensland Health's run DNA facility, the police had the opportunity to go back and say, um, even though there's, you know, what you call insufficient cells for testing for DNA, um, can you please just go and test it anyway? But they would only do that if the police would tell them to do it. But the police didn't realise that they had to say that. Mm. So there's even recently after the podcast has come out because of Headley Thomas, two cases since then, Two have now convicted two people, one of a rape and one of a murder because oh of the retesting of this DNA. There would be so many nervous people in Queensland, and they should be, mm. who have committed crimes and gotten away with it because yeah. of DNA testing. And they could have gone on to commit other crimes. Absolutely. And, oh, but also it's, they're not being, you know, not being tried for something, some yeah. horrible crime that they've committed. Yeah, they've got, they've, they've, well, they would think that they've gotten away with it. Yeah. But you wouldn't be sleeping too well if you, no. if you were in Queensland and you'd mm. committed any kind of crime, you know, in the last 10, 15 years. Mm. So, I mean, it, it's, they're calling it one of the biggest humanitarian crises of, you know, the crime, criminal justice system of mm. of Queensland if not Australia God. because there are going to be thousands anyway there's a there's a season 2 of the podcast called uh, Shandy's Legacy and it's and it's um the same people who did the teacher's pet mm-hmm. trial okay so it's that group of people so they all sit around talking mm-hmm. about the inquest and it's absolutely mind blowing the stuff that's coming out so um, highly recommend. Highly recommend. Wow. Actually, yeah. I was um, doing some research recently for a client and um, looking at someone had disappeared and um, trying to find what happened to them. And I found mm. all of these children, like, below. This is, it's a, like, trying to draw a diagram of this family tree is just right. next level. Like, everyone's, yeah. the father's had all these children with his wife. And then he's had the mistress, who was the housekeeper, who's the oh, woman God. I'm looking for, but she's like 30 years younger than him. Then, you know, his wife's gone off and had two more children with other men oh, and all wow. of this stuff. So, this is a, yeah. this is like late 1890s, early 1900s. And, um, Anyway, so I'm looking at all of these children and I found they've all gone into state care at different points and um, one of the girls, two sorry, two of the sisters went into care together mm. and um, I thought, oh, gee, one of them's died. This Before I realised they'd gone into care, I said, oh, one of them was only four, I think, when she died. I thought, that's really sad. Mm. Anyway, it mm. turns out that she there was an inquest, coroner's inquest for her, and I thought, oh, this is never good. Like if you're, if you're looking at an inquest for around that period, it's, yeah. you know, 
it's always going to be something pretty horrific. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'd read one where a baby was suffocated because, you know, they were sleeping mm. in the same bed. But mm. this yeah. little girl was, um, so keep in mind, this is about 1904. Mm-hmm. Um, she and her sister were playing. She went to the outhouse to obviously go to the toilet and she drowned so she it's like she looked down and she'd fallen in and she drowned and I thought we don't know where she's gone oh no yeah yeah so it's not all fun and games genealogy sometimes it can be really really awful and it turns out the sister that lived with her she stayed in care um but looking at the entries in her ward um ward of the state records she was Mm -hmm. moved around a lot in probably a space of oh, 12 to 14 years, yeah, yeah, which means that they were the foot she's trouble, like there's a few notations saying, yeah. you know, of, of ill repute and that sort of thing, mm, but she's mm. found her dead, her sister dead. Like that's Absolutely. going to have an effect on you. Her yeah. mother just disappeared, her father died, she's got all of these siblings scattered yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it was... Um, Oh, that would be heartbreaking, especially because mm. you're, yeah, you're sort of investigating, not knowing what you're going to find, and that's mm. what you uncover. Oh. Yeah. Mm. So we've really put a damper on this, haven't we? We've really, we've really decided to just keep it positive this episode, which is good. I mean, no, if you... really good. But I did, um, I was on Instagram earlier because you know mm. what else does one As you one do? do? Um, and I've seen a post who's which is by Susie Dent, who's one mm. of the hosts of mm. um, Something Runs with Purple. Yes. And it's a word of the day and I thought, oh, this is excellent. So the word is mubble fubbles. Mubble fubbles. <laughs> it's from the 16th century and it means vague Sunday evening-ish blues and a slight sense of doom. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've got to, I've I've got to share that. That is brutal. I, I love the slight sense of doom. Like yeah. just, just a just yeah. slight sense of doom. There's this little, you know, underlying. Mubble mm-hmm. fubble. Mm. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. Oh, hold on. Mubble. <laughs> Mubble. Uh, fubbles. Mubble fubbles. Mm. Yeah, it's hyphenated. Mubble fubbles. Mm. I love it. Got the mubble fubbles. Word of the week. Sometimes I feel a bit mubbly fubbly. <laughs> I feel a bit mubbly fubbly myself. Yeah, there you go. There's your uh, challenge. Use that in a sentence this week. Yep. (laughs) What's your little historical fact for today? Okay. Just this is purely coincidence. Yeah. Um, Talking about that ward record and the inquest that I was reading. so obviously it can be fairly tough reading, but my fact is that these records can open up a whole other, whole other issues and lines of um, research, but it all relates back to the first Children's Maintenance Act in Victoria, which was enacted in 1919. Mm-hmm. So under the terms of the new Act, mothers could apply to the Department of Neglected Children for, vi- for financial assistance rather than having their children committed to care. Before this, a poor law um, forced mothers to technically abandon their children so they would be seen as neglected and taken in by the state so they could mm. be cared for uh, as there was no financial or governmental support that allowed mothers and their children to stay together. Keeping it light today on the Really light. Trip. Yeah, really <laughs> light. 
Who you got for us today? Okay. Um, today I have a lady who was an absolute legal powerhouse and Victoria's first ever female QC. Joan Mavis Rosanov, nee Lazarus, was born in Ballarat in 1896, the second child of eight to her barrister father, Mark Lazarus, and mother, Ruby Braham, both non-practicing Jews. So to set the the time, about mm. five years before Joan was born, Australia was in the grips of an economic depression. So the country had ridden well on the wool industry and the 1880s were very prosperous. But by 1890, unionised workers were striking for better wages and conditions. In 1895, the smash hit Waltzing Matilda by Banjo Patterson hits the charts. Smash hit. Smash hit. Patterson wrote the words and a woman, I just learnt this, named Christina McPherson of Dagwood Station near Winton in Queensland wrote the music. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Bloody heck. There you go. There you go. And in 1896, the first modern Olympic Games were held in Athens and an Australian man by the name of Edwin Flack, an accountant and champion runner, competed and was said to be the first Australian to do so. He won the 800-metre and 1,500-metre sprints, took part in the marathon and also won a bronze medal in doubles tennis. Bless him. I love it. Accountant slash runner. I know. Accountant slash Olympic runner. (laughs) Mm. Joan and her siblings had a good education where she attended Loretto Convent School and then Clarendon Presbyterian Ladies College in Ballarat. Fortuitously, she studied Latin at school, not because she was ambitious to use it, but because she had an infatuation with the Latin teacher. Mm. (laughs) She was extremely intelligent but had no thoughts of practising law, which would, in fact, be following in the three generations of legal professionals in her family. She came from a long line of males in her family that practised the law, including her father, who was an amalgam, which is someone who practised as both a solicitor and a barrister. Two brothers were lawyers. Her grandfather and great-grandfather were lawyers. She had three maternal uncles that were barristers and her paternal uncle was also a barrister. So maybe... It was in the blood. I just have to mention also for Mm -hmm. our listeners who are not in Australia, because we do have listeners from all over the world, the sound you can hear in the background is the Australian magpie. Now, I don't know if it's – I can hear it loud and clear in my headphones, so – it's warbling. It's it's out there and I apologise. <laughs> uh, so barristers, just FYI, I had to learn this too, barristers are courtroom lawyers. So think of, you know, the, the TV shows you watch, you know, yeah. law and order, that sort of thing. I object, Your Honour. Yes. Yes. Sustained. Yes, with mm. all due respect. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. LA Law, um, loved exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, and solicitors are lawyers who work from offices and when applicable they brief barristers to appear on behalf of their clients. Oh, cool. I was going to ask yeah. you that, so thank mm. you. Great. You're welcome. As a teenager, Joan did become more interested when she began clerical work in her father's office and she used to watch him in the courtroom. Her father tried to dissuade her from the legal profession, fearing a bleak future full of prejudice because of the mere fact that she was a woman in a male-dominated profession. However, he realised how determined she was and accepted her as his article clerk, which is essentially an internship um, or, you know, a trainee solicitor that went usually between three, three and five years. She began studying law at Melbourne University, where she graduated at the age of 21 years old in 1917. However, she was not formally admitted to the legal profession until mid-1919. 
This was to allow the male students who'd returned from the First World War to complete their degrees and then they could all be admitted at the same time and add more gravitas to the ceremony. Stop it. Yeah, because the ceremony would only seem serious with all the men folk graduating. Are you are you mm. fucking serious? Yeah. So she's finished in 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 yeah, she's 1917. She has to wait two, two years. years. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, they're off serving the country, you know, amazing. But war, war, what is it good for? And also, <laughs> and also. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I mean, why do they have to wait? I know. Two years. I, so what does she do for those two years? Just like sit around twiddling her thumbs? I imagine she would have been still um, cloaking for her father. Yeah, fair I'm enough. not 100% but, sure, but I would imagine that, yeah, it would have been sort of internship learning on the job. Um, yeah. sort of thing. So the Jewish Herald wrote about Joan's success in graduating in law and described how Ms Lazarus was the first Jewess in Australia to be admitted to the law. So although Melbourne University's law school was established in 1857, women were not admitted for the first 40 years, <laughs> obviously. You may ask why. Oh, uh, why, old, why? Why? The old argument was that women's brains were small and studying would have a bad <laughs> effect on their health and ultimately render them sterile. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, no. But not only that, the authorities believed that women would not have the mental toughness to deal with the horrifying details of sexual depravity and violence encountered in the legal profession. Mm, God, and <sighs> now, now look at the world and who's the number one audience for true crime at the yeah. moment. <laughs> Getting some tips. <laughs> women, right? After graduating, she joined her father and gained experience as an amalgam. Mark Lazarus had practices in Melbourne and Ballarat. However, her mother felt she was too young to live away from home. So every morning she would get up at 5am to cycle to the train station to catch the train to work in Melbourne at her father's offices, as well as studying her compulsory law subjects at Melbourne University. Uh, so she'd return home to Ballarat on the 8pm train oh. where she would work on her law assignments. Oh, God. Mm. So it's a big day. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. In her first case, whose brief had been handed to her by her father, she was involved in defending a father who had neglected his children. In consequence of this case, changes to the existing relevant legislation were deemed necessary and eventually incorporated into the Child Welfare Act of 1923. So I've so she can't, was defending I, I, him. She was defending mm. him and I can't speak to what the case was because yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it sounds like it, even though she was defending him, it had a good outcome because there were changes made to the right. legislation. Because of that. That's, yep. Yep. Yeah, okay. that, that's my take on it personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1920 when she was standing in as a defence counsel for her father who had double booked himself and was busy with another trial in, Bar- in Ballarat, she made headlines with her fearless exacting interrogation at a Melbourne trial. It was a defamation case and the witness on the stand was none other than the Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes who was mm-hmm. said to have not been expecting what came to him. Frustratingly, a young female lawyer not only faced an evasive Hughes but an anti-feminist judge, Mr mm-hmm. Justice MacArthur, and ultimately she lost the case. So apparently Billy Hughes was quite deaf and he had to have what we know as a hearing aid but it was like a trumpet and he'd oh. pretend that he couldn't hear what she was saying. Oh, so gosh. it was really evasive and a bit of a dick by the sounds of it. Later that same year, Joan married a young Jewish doctor, Emmanuel, 
or Manny Rosanov, with Jewish rights. Manny would go on to be a prominent dermatologist. However, before that and soon after they married, he opened a medical practice in Tokabul in New South Wales. The couple moved from the metropolis that was Ballarat to the small town on the banks of the Murray River. Sadly, Joan and Manny's first child was stillborn, which absolutely crushed the two of them. Their second child, a daughter, Rose Margaret, known as Peg, was born in Tokemal in 1922. In 1923, the Rosanovs moved back to Melbourne on the t- and on the 10th of September that year, Joan signed the Victorian Bar Roll, becoming the, fo- the first woman in Victoria to do so. Looking for rooms to work from, she sought the prestige of the Selborne Chambers. This was where most barristers had their chambers in the legal precinct in Melbourne, which is primarily bounded by Collins, William, Lonsdale and Queen Streets in the CBD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, this was not to be. The Selborne Mm. Chambers were a hotbed of white masculinity and not only did she endure sexual discrimination but religious discrimination as well, even Mm. though she was not actually a practising Jew. But for Melbourne's Anglo-Saxon Protestant legal circles, it was the old boy network that operated strongly. So there was no room for women or for Jews or indeed Jewish women at Selborne Chambers. Mm, I'd say probably Mm. not much has changed, but anyway. Mm. (laughs) I think you're probably right. (laughs) (laughs) Not only that, she saw few briefs handed to her as they all went to her male peers, except for those handed to her from her father's office. She ended up taking up offices in a dilapidated building in Chancery Lane where she was overrun by rodents and cockroaches that ate away at her legal books. Mm, She also, I know, She also experienced discrimination from sexist judges, including the distinguished Mr Justice Abeckett Weagle, who would either yawn at her or look bored when Joan was called upon to plead her cases. It was, I know, what an idiot. Mm. It was said that this particular judge loathed the idea of women invading the law. Mm. Invading the law. I know. right, mate? I know. She was determined to prove herself and so she put up a brass plate at home and worked from a joint suite of consulting rooms there. Mm. In 1925, she reverted back to her role as an amalgam and accepted mainly criminal and matrimonial cases which established a thriving business for her. By the late 1930s, she was well known for fighting for women's interests, particularly those that involved breach of promise cases or divorce cases, where the law was often stacked against women. To gain a divorce, women had to prove cruelty or adultery on not just one occasion, but various occasions by their husband. Mm. Not only were her verbal skills legendary in these cases, she was also well known for discovering exactly what assets a husband possessed, of which he had not declared to the court. Oh, sneaky. I know. And also that they... Sorry. No, no. Also that they had to prove that, you know, like they had to prove the adultery or whatever. Like how back Mm. then, you know, they couldn't just be like, oh, God, he got a text message. Like (laughs) what? (laughs) Someone sent him a Snapchat. (laughs) He's been sending nude snaps. (laughs) Just him and a monocle. (laughs) He was wearing nothing but a monocle. <laughs> and a top hat. And a top hat. <laughs> oh, so after these discoveries, um, they often, Joan often had favourable outcomes for the women in these cases. Good. Taking on a different type of case, in 1934 she represented Egon Kish, who was a Prague-born, Paris-based communist journalist of Jewish parentage. 
He had arrived in Australia to attend the anti-war Congress in Melbourne under the support of the movement against war and fascism. However, on arrival, he was refused permission to disembark from the ship due to his communist sympathies. Therefore, staying on board, he arrived in Melbourne and Joan, with all of the surrounding publicity, became his legal representative. After much legal back and forth and putting up an almighty fight, Kish was detained and escorted to the ship to return home. Detecting the worst, he jumped overboard to the wharf below and landed in a heap, breaking his leg in two places. He was dragged back onto the boat by police, an act in which an act in which Joan claimed was unlawful. Joan's father urged her to continue the fight in Sydney where he was being transported before being returned to Europe. For telling that it will go on for many months, Joan handed the reins to an extreme left-wing Sydney barrister to continue the fight for justice. However, at the time, under the Federal Immigration Act of 1901, the government had the right to give any foreigners a dictation test in any European foreign language they liked to test the suitability of those disembarking onto Australian shores. Really? This is all part of the white Australia policy. Wow. Yeah, God. Mm. And, I mean, that's what have been months and months of travel and Mm. like, oh, God. Yeah. Mm. So keep in mind that Kish was Czechoslovakian um, and, you know, spent time in Paris. He was tested in Scottish Gaelic, which he inevitably failed. Hello. Mm. So this Anyone was just, would fail Scottish Gaelic. Yeah, I know. Kidding? I didn't even I know there was Scottish Gaelic as a <laughs> And Gaelic is so hard oh. to it's not it doesn't sound like it looks no. at all. Seamus. <laughs> Shwashwi. Sharasi. Sharaswi Sweesi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That girl? Sio Bohan. Sio Bohan. Sorry, we are just murdering. Lovely, so beautiful Gaelic names right now. Sorry to the Siobhans, the Seamuses and the Shersha. Shersha. Yes. Yeah. Very yep. good. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so this, um, the Immigration Act, was just one of many racist, segregating and deliberate acts used at the time to deter, detain and return unwanted foreigners, which were essentially anyone that was not white or aligned with Australia's values at the time. Mm. So although it was a risky case, Joan knew of the persecution and almost guaranteed death by firing squad of Kish if he was sent back to Europe. Oh, dear. The Rosanovs the had themselves visited Europe and had avoided Berlin due to Hitler's brown shirts and the anti-Jewish sentiment that was already seeing people flee their native Germany. So after the failure of his dictation test, he was sentenced to six months hard labour for being an illegal immigrant. A high court appeal followed, which ultimately saw Kish freed. Due to the high profile of the case, Joan's starring role, she was seen as having revolutionary tendencies and a note was added to her file. So that would be her ASIO file, oh, dossier. Right, her file. Mm. Mm. So coupled with that um, was the fact that she'd also chaired an auntie. <laughs> an auntie? <laughs> no. 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 Coupled with that was the fact that she'd also chaired an anti-war meeting with Jessie Street, who was a feminist and suffragette and was the daughter of one of the more prominent Scotocracy in Australia. So, you know, there was a bit of a target above her head essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not being very popular. No. In the 1950s when she was applying for a visa to America, she was shown her file which claimed that she was a revolutionary, to which she replied, do I look like a revolutionary? I've defended many criminals but that does not mean I believe in crime. She was granted the visa but was made to write a stat deck to declare that she was not and had never been a communist. 
For two years prior to the Kish case, the Rosanov family travelled through Canada, the USA and Britain between 1932 and 1933 when their second daughter, Judy, was born. This was a planned trip to give birth uh, to Judy, Joan and Manny's second child, as Joan didn't want her male colleagues sniggering at her increasing size as her pregnancy progressed. Mm. How would they notice under the robes, you you may ask? Well, that would be due to the use of the communal robing rooms in the courts. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. They probably didn't even have their own bathrooms either. No, probably not. Yeah. Mm. In 1949, she again signed the bar roll and this time she was able to practice from Selborne Chambers. However, it was not how she'd hoped it would be when her only way of getting her foot in the door was by accepting her position as a reader to a male barrister who was her junior, not only in age but also in experience. She finally got the room in her own right when he moved into state and she was able to take over. It was not only about the prestige of having Selborne Chambers as her letterhead, it represented the acceptance as an equal with her male counterparts. Mm, absolutely. In 1954, Joan compiled evidence for reforms to the divorce bill when she published a paper in the Australian Law Journal. It was not until five years later that the Commonwealth Attorney General introduced a matrimonial causes bill embodying many of the reforms Joan proposed and it was then not until 1975 that Australia introduced no-fault divorce. Wow. So it was a long time. That's... By that stage she'd been practising for... Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, no, it was after she, sorry, it was after she died that that was actually introduced. Yeah. But she, she's, she's she, kicked it off at least, you yeah. know, like that. That's, yep. Yeah. Yeah. The same year she began working on the reform, she began the first of her several applications in Victoria to take silk, which is to become a senior member of the bar or become a Queen's Council, a QC. Mm-hmm. Which just as a side note, mm-hmm. I wonder now if it will become a KC. Oh. A King's Council. Yes. Mm. I assume it will. QC, KC and the Sunshine Sunshine Band. Band. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. (laughs) However, she was not successful in her application until 1965, which led many of her peers to conclude that she'd been shabbily treated. Mm. This was the fact, clearly, that she was a woman. Unfortunately, due to the 11-year delay, she was not to become the first female QC in Australia. That honour went to Roma Mitchell, who was appointed a QC in South Australia in 1962. Two years after Joan was appointed a QC in Victoria, she also took silk in New South Wales. Throughout her career, she also advocated for uniform divorce laws in Australia rather than state-by-state laws. So often you'd see you know, one thing in Queensland that, yeah. you know, you could petition for divorce for, um, you know, that the man had a bad temper and was violent, but it yeah. can be completely different in New South Wales. Yeah. So she yeah. advocated for a uniform law. Yes. Yeah. She wanted Amazing. to see an end to the injustices that wives suffered in court. Women had few rights over property and their children when they divorced. The law was also unjust when it came to dealing with adultery. A woman could be divorced if found guilty of a single act of adultery. However, a woman wanting to divorce her husband for adultery had to prove that it had taken place repeatedly or else produce evidence of adultery coupled with several acts of cruelty. Oh, quiet. So such evidence would need to be in the form of photographs or eyewitness accounts or testimony from a detective. So it was really, really difficult. Yeah. Really difficult. Mm, Jesus. 
She was also an advocate for a woman continuing her career even after they were married, which was not the done thing if a husband could Mm. financially support his wife. She wrote, The statement that a woman has no business taking up a career because her husband is able to support her is utterly ridiculous. We would not dream of saying that a man who is married to a rich woman, however great her riches, was justified in not working. Mm. It is my opinion that a woman should enter the field of work on an even footing with men. Her fees should be the same as a man's, not only because her work is equally as good, but because she must on no account undercut the work of her masculine rival, who may be the sole supporter of the family. Joan retired in 1969 after 50 years practicing law and facing plenty of adversity and sexism. She was a force and known for her wit, stylish fashion, very short stature, and her long cigarette holder. Oh, brilliant. What an amazing picture you just painted. And she did not hesitate to do anything in her power in the courtroom. She was a fierce defendant of her clients and a penetrating cross-examiner of witnesses. She also did not hesitate in challenging presiding judges and magistrates. She advocated for women to sit on the juries in Australia, as they did in Britain, something that was not achieved in Victoria until 1975. Wow, is that right? Yeah. 1975, when women were allowed. Mm. So she did admit that she preferred men on juries as they tended to be more sympathetic to female defendants. Right. On being a female lawyer, Joan said, you must have the stamina of an ox and a hide like a rhinoceros, and when they kick you in the teeth, you must look as if you hadn't noticed. Joan Mavis Rosanov died in 1974 at the age of 78 years old. Her legacy lived on through her daughter Peg, who went on to study law after the premature death of her first husband, Mm. where she enrolled with their son, who was in second year law at university. She went on to have a distinguished career and became a judge in the family court and an adjunct professor of law at Bond University. And in 1999, a block of barristers' chambers was named the Joan Rosanov Chambers in Lonsdale Street, Melbourne, not far from Selborne Chambers. Amazing. And just last week, history was made in Australia's own legal system when the High High Court appointed another female judge to the bench. Mm-hmm. Jane Jaggett will be the seventh woman to sit on the High Court bench and when she takes her place in court, it will be a majority of justices in the High Court that will be women, which is the first time since Federation. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Mm. So that is the story of Joan Rosanov. Oh, Joan Rosanov, mm. amazing. We salute you. have lots to thank for you. Um, mm. We have lots of thank. Oh. We have lots to thank you for, Joan. <laughs> Joan. Thank you. Yeah, so wow. there you go. I, yeah, I was listening to a podcast about uh, women not being on the jury um, mm-hmm. and it kind of was something that didn't really occur to me that, of course, like women wouldn't have been, I, yeah, it was actually um, a podcast, it was a murder podcast, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> But it was the case from like the 1920s and, they, yeah, the, all the, the jury all the jury were men and because mm. women weren't allowed at the time. But have you ever done jury duty? No, I've never been called up. Yeah, mm. I, got, I got called up um, about, oh, it was probably about 10 years ago now. But, and they, it's such a weird process, but they, um, you just, you just get a letter and you just, it's like this is happening and you have to go to this trial and I had my the trial that I had was 32 weeks oh oh my goodness yeah so so I've just (laughs) 
I've like read the letter and practically fallen over and gone, that's that's like three quarters of a year. Well, so they told you prior they, to, yeah. oh, okay. They, t- they yeah. say how long it's going to be. They don't tell you yeah. what the trial is, but they tell you yeah. how long you're expected to serve. Mm. And so I went to my wow. work and I said, look, I've been called up for jury duty. Um, it's 34-week trial and they're like, uh, absolutely not. Mm. And so then I ha- so then you, you can go in when you, the day that you, you go in, that you have to go in to be selected, you can go in with a letter from your boss saying, you know, this is not going to work out for us. <laughs> kind of need her. And she's, you have to sort of prove that you're the only person who can do your yeah. particular job. Um, and the other thing was, you know, I was living in Bondi at the time, you know, pretty, pretty expensive suburb of Sydney. And, uh, uh, you only get, I think your work only pays you up until a certain amount mm. and then they stop paying you and then you only get the allowance that's given. And I wouldn't have been able to even afford my rent by the it's allowance that they were giving, giving yeah. me. It's something like $40 a day or something. Yeah, it's nothing, right? Yeah. So I traipse into the courts in New South Wales in Sydney and I've got my little letter in my hand and I'm like... I need to get out of this one. I can't. I can't do this one. This is too long. I've got things on, guys. I've got things on. <laughs> and um, they were like, "Okay, that's fine." And they make you sit down and wait, and they come back and they're like, "Well, look, we'll put you onto this other one, which is only going to go for um, eighteen days." And I was like, okay. "Cool, I can do that. I'm in." So then you have to go through the whole process of you know going into the. Um, everyone goes into the the court. They pull numbers out of a hat and if your number gets called, you go and you sit in the little box. Mm-hmm. So my number got called, so I got to that point and then they go around and they, the, the defence and the prosecution are both there and they will, they'll look at you and say you stand up and they say any objections just based on what you look like, what you're wearing. Mm-hmm. They can question it and say mm-hmm. no don't want that person, then they'll call another number and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they ended up getting their 12 jurors, which I got selected. And then you go into a little room and you get, you get your phone taken off you, you get your folder and you sit in a room with these people who you've never met before and straight away, you know, you work out there's the annoying one, mm. there's, the, there's the one that's <laughs> the, the teacher's victim, pet. There's, there's, yeah, the teacher's yeah. pet. there's the rebel yeah. that's going to try and sneak their phone in every time. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, so it's hilarious. So it's all sitting there and um, – and then we get called in for the first bit, which is the when they they get up and they state their kind of arguments, leading argument. I don't know the terms. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all sitting there, and the guy. So it was a case where this girl, the a guy, had held his girlfriend hostage with a knife mm. Uh, mm. for, you know, forty eight hours or something. And he is sitting in the court and he's sitting opposite us and he's got like scars all over his face and look, he looks scary. It's very hard to like cast your judgment aside mm. when you're looking at a guy like that who yeah. is being convicted of this thing, right? Mm. And you're, but you've got to try to get that out of your head. Anyway, we, we kind of heard that, right, yep, good, came back the next day went in again in the morning and then the defence had pulled out some new evidence that hadn't originally been tabled. So the whole thing got um, postponed Oh, and we all got to- told to go home. Oh. So and it, just that process, I mean, I just thought the, the 
the process of having to do that for every single case that then that case is going to have to, that whole process is going to happen again, mm. would have had to have happened again for that whole case. I mean, just imagine going through that, the, yeah. the process of it for it actually yeah. gets to the point where you're, you've started and you're, the trial's kind of mm. beginning. Um, it was fascinating. It was such a amazing look into the criminal justice system and the way mm. it kind of works and the pomp and ceremony of it all, yeah. you know, like yeah. you're sort of like, oh, everyone kind of just seems to know what they do and what to mm. say and they stand up and they sit down and they, I don't know, it was, it was yeah, it was definitely an experience. So glad I didn't have to do 34 weeks. I mean. That is a long time. I wonder what the trial was. I found out later it mm. was there was a, a young guy who had killed his whole family. <gasps> I think it was a news agency. It was in okay. Sydney. Yeah. It was in northwest Sydney um, and he'd, yeah, he'd killed he murdered his whole family. Wow. So it was pretty pretty devastating. It was like, you know, four four murders. Oh, um, that's oh, – and just that – being on a mm, jury mm. or being, you know, sitting in the courtroom, that's going to stay with you forever, something oh, like that. It would be awful. Listening to that evidence. Yeah. Mm. Oh, it would be awful. I mean, I even – because they went into detail about what happened to this poor girl and, I, like, I can still see that guy's face, you know. Mm. It's like, oh, that's not – yeah, it's yeah. full on. Yeah. Uh, cool. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for like the light and airy episode we've real, today. Real light and airy. It was all about I felt like we just we top and tailed that with murder. We I did. did. Well, yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. We promise next week it will be a bit lighter. Please it come will. back. <laughs> promise that, I'll, look, from now on I'll have a murder jar and every time I want to start talking about murder. I have to put a dollar. Yeah, in the jar. Dollar in the jar. Mm.